Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Article 22 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights reads in part, everyone as a member of society has the right to social security and is entitled to realization through national effort and international cooperation and in accordance with the organization and resources of each state of the economic, social, and cultural rights indispensable for his dignity and the freedom of his personality. Whoa. Elizabeth Suda, my guest today, has put those words into action. She is the founder of Article 22, whose mission, and I quote again, celebrates stories of transformation and makes real impact through jewelry handmade in Laos. We partner with artisans in the -the off-the-beaten-track places to create modern heirlooms that are beautiful and meaningful. All right, some background. After spending two years working in the merchandising department of the upscale accessory company Coach, Elizabeth bagged it all and headed for Southeast Asia. She wanted to understand how local sustainable crafts made by women could become part of the global fashion market. Elizabeth, like so many others, had no idea about the 1963 to 1974 secret war and neutral Laos. To contain the spread of communism, American B-52s dropped one bomb load every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. 80 million of 250 million failed to detonate. So Elizabeth wound up in a rural Laotian village where she met artisans who were melting those unexploded U.S. bombs into spoons. And that's when Article 22 was born. The peace bomb bracelet, handmade by traditional Laotian artists from Vietnam War shrapnel and other debris, was crafted with a major goal in mind, buying back the bombs. Article 22 has developed into a global business with an ever-evolving collection of jewelry and home goods sold in 40 countries. So Elizabeth is here, and I'm very excited to meet and get to know you. Welcome, and thanks for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me. So, Elizabeth, does it blow you away as I describe you? Well, that was better than I could have written it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, you know, it, it's been 10 years since I went to Laos, actually 11, and it, it's, it's been a real journey, a continuous one. And in a way, looking back, I never would have expected being where we are today, connecting with customers across the world, and actually making impact by helping to clear unexploded bombs in the land in Laos. Well, let's go back before that. Were you always so conscious of the of the world around you? I think I was shaken into consciousness around the age of eight for a few reasons. Um, I, I always joke and say I pretty much peaked at the age of eight. <laughs> <laughs> but... I, I think it was my father who had pretty serious cancer and my grandmother who had Alzheimer's disease made me death aware. and So old beyond your years kind of? Or? As morbid as that sounds, uh-huh. it, it was a gift in the sense of realizing how fragile life is. Life mm-hmm. is. And, and fortunately, my father persevered and he made it and he was so optimistic and had that great attitude you need. Uh, to 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 survive. My grandmother, on the other hand, didn't, and it's a totally different disease. But I saw both outcomes, mm-hmm. and I think that made me really conscious. It made me motivated to 
to quote one of our collaborators at Article 22, be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I really, I, I think it made me want to help people who uh, were less fortunate. Were less fortunate. Mm-hmm. And how did you do that? Well, I always had a creative angle, I suppose. And, um, you know, I gave speeches in my school about women's rights and, and I had a, an African-American teacher in third grade and I became obsessed with her and obsessed with Martin Luther King. And I saw these historical figures who made real differences mm-hmm. and, you know, emerged from the murky waters to, to succeed and, and, and build these social movements and change the world profoundly. And so I was very inspired by that. Not that I ever thought, oh, I'm going to become an activist, but it was a very hopeful thing to see that history, despite the challenges, produced these incredible figures and leaders. And mm-hmm. so I was engaged, I would say. Um, I may or may not have you know, held little political rallies in my basement with signs. Or marched. Uh, <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I was I was preaching to my dolls. I had, <laughs> you know, signs that said, Jerry Brown for president. And I didn't know who Jerry Brown was. I was clearly influenced by my, my mother and my mm-hmm. father. And I was lucky to be exposed to ideas in the world mm-hmm. that maybe were uncomfortable and that most eight-year-olds weren't talking about. But like I said, I think that initial shock... Um, made me see the world for what it was. Did that become more impactful for you once you went to college? It definitely did. Um, although it's funny, when I think of college, I, I think if I could go back now and do it again, how much more I could have squeezed out of it. I think by the time I got to college, I I almost needed a little break. Mm. And so I definitely had a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Yeah, exhaled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I think traveling and studying abroad at Oxford was an enormous experience for me because it really did make me realize just how large the world was and how I came from a perspective and right. how many more perspectives there are. Um, and so that that trip, in combination with the trips that my family prioritized mm-hmm. for our lives growing up, um, made me really curious. So when it came to graduating from college with a history degree and having studied many art history courses, uh, my first job at Coach it was exciting, but it didn't quite feel enough. It like. wasn't a great marriage? You know, I learned so much, and I'm so happy for every minute of it. Um, I, I always joke it was almost like a, a mini MBA. It was my first business experience uh, where okay. I got, you know, I got this 360-degree view of a supply chain and what it was to run a business and take a product made thousands of miles away and bring it to market and sell it and understand if it was selling well. Did you think when you started at Coach that you had gotten your dream job? That's the thing. Mm -hmm. I felt grateful, but I didn't feel like suddenly I saw myself in my boss's shoes or my boss's boss's shoes. There was a very clear path and hierarchy, and I just didn't see myself 
fitting into it that in an, mold. Mm-hmm. yeah in an obvious way mm-hmm. and i just felt like i had more questions than answers the more i knew the more i felt like i on a personal basis wanted to see the world and then professionally i became very interested in this idea around sustainability and fashion so that was you talking to you in a sense there was not a specific catalyst that set that off there was something brewing in your brain yeah, I think I definitely have a few activist bones in my body. And um, with regard to my time at Coach, there was one really interesting moment. I really enjoyed my time there. And it was a company that cared about its its people. You know, we got summer Fridays. I mean, th- those things matter. A little forward thinking, huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, you know, we got discounts. We became part of, you know, the Coach tribe. What year was this? And this was in 2005 to 7 okay. about. Mm-hmm. So I I really appreciated all of that. And one of the things I appreciated was how uh, the the upper management, you know, I'm, I'm the lowest on the totem pole. It's my first job ever. But they said, okay, so for all of the young ones, you guys are going to be the leaders of the intern pool this summer. And you all are going to come up with a creative strategy that you're going to present to the senior vice president and everyone about how we could think about the next collection and what we would do to to market it. So it was just a, an exercise at the end of the day. So I raised my hand and I said, well, what if our team chooses the environment as our focus? And my team said yes. And we did this full deep dive into the light bulbs (laughs) that Coach was using down to, you know, materials that were being used to make the bags. In fact, Coach was vegetable tanning its leather since inception. And so that was really an interesting distinction when you talk about sustainability using vegetable Mm -hmm. tanning processes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we just became really passionate and interested in this. But then when it was presented to the managers at the end of the summer, it it just wasn't received. Not sexy enough for them, huh? Exactly. Mm. So I just thought, okay, you know, it's a sign. I I think my time here is probably, probably done. At the time, sustainability and fashion were like oil and water, a bad salad dressing. (laughs) And nobody cared. No. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have to leave, but you opted to do that. And then what made you think you could head for Southeast Asia, number one, Why did you want to go to Southeast Asia? Well, let me tell you, first of all, all of my friends and family were like, you're giving up the coach discount? (laughs) What about my bags, right? What about my future? Exactly. So I said, yeah, sorry, but you can come visit me. What was your discount, by the way? It was generous. I don't know. I don't want to. Okay, just curious. But Mm -hmm. it was was very. More than 50%. Very generous. Uh, no, no, okay. no, not right. more, but um, maybe maybe an occasional moment <laughs> of a sample sale, but <laughs> okay. But it was extremely generous. Like I said, they, they really did instill a few very interesting values into their business when it came to how they treated their employees and also how they looked at, you know, the democratization of fashion and, and, and making sure that uh, many different people could be part of the brand at different levels. I, th- I, I really did learn a lot, and, and I can tell you a little bit later how that influenced even the way I think about Article 22 and we build our pricing strategy. So take us on your trip to Southeast Asia. So I try to give the short version. Okay. But I I actually got there through a failure. 
I applied for a Fulbright to go to India. Within Coach, you know, Mm -hmm. I start researching natural dyes Mm -hmm. in particular. And I'm interested in natural dyes, and that leads me to become interested in handloom weaving because often, you know, these age-old practices are going with hand-in-hand with artisans who are handloom weaving as well. And so I managed to get incredible sponsorship from a businessman in India who runs an enormous cotton business. I get incredible support from a professor at FIT. Fashion Institute of Technology, for those who don't know. That's Mm -hmm. right. I had enrolled myself in a course at FIT to understand textiles in general. And I research and I write probably the worst application ever. For this Fulbright. For this Fulbright. Mm -hmm. And it was so bad because I was just exploding with interest and ideas and it just was terribly unfocused. I was trying to do too many things at once. And it turns out cotton is one of India's biggest exports. And they don't really want people talking about organic cotton. Gotcha. It's a tricky subject. Mm -hmm. So I realize that I'm not going to get the Fulbright. So I start looking online for other opportunities. And I come across a website called idealist.org. And there, there are many jobs. UN, World Bank, many, many nonprofits and NGOs. The site seems incredibly reputable. And so I find an opportunity in this place I've never heard before, heard of before. I have to look it up on a map. I'm ashamed to say, but it's true. And it's describing my dream job, which is to help develop these textiles for export to the U.S. and Europe with the idea that These women have this incredible talent and skill to naturally dye, handloom weave, but some of the design needs to be tweaked. And so let's let's build this organization that will support the women to, you know, build their livelihoods out of their traditional art form. Uh And uh, on the other hand, let's sell them. So I'm getting up at 4 a.m. on mornings to talk to this person who is hiring me. Who is where? In Luang Prabang, Laos. Okay. And I'm thinking, this is a dream, but I'm getting up at 4 a.m., but you know what? I'll do anything for this. And so one thing leads to the next. And after a few, quite a few emails and, and phone conversations, I just feel like something is off. And I just can't go over there confidently working with this person. Mm-hmm. So I've already bought my ticket. I've already bought my ticket. So I'm going. I'm going. <laughs> I have enough money to get me through six months. I'm going. And I went. And Knowing no one, no, not knowing the language. I'm... Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. My parents are not the most Supportive, I would guess. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. They were worried um, for sure, but they knew that. The best decision was to support me because I was going to go. Either way. And you were certainly very determined. Yeah. So you go. I went. And I started knocking on doors immediately. But it happened that pretty much the first door that I knocked on was, was it? You know, I say this to the women a lot. There's a word in Yiddish. It's called beshert. 
and the definition of a shirt is meant to be. And so if that door was the first one you knocked on and a match was made, you're not going to get a rise out of me because it was supposed to happen. Yeah, it does give me the chills to this day to think about it. I told and my who answered the door? It was the door of a woman whose business I looked up prior to arriving. And believe me, there are not many... Women-owned businesses in Laos. Women-owned <laughs> businesses in Laos. I mean, for so many reasons, but one of them is that the country was just opening up in the 1990s when she started this business. Madame Nicone was partially educated in France, and she came back to Laos to reinvigorate you know, the local weaving culture and community and make sure that at least this group of women would be able to earn livelihoods, take care of their families, even bring their children to work when they needed to, to export to a more global market, to share their cultural art form. And so I arrived and she happened not to be there because it happened that she was also the president of the Lao Handicrafts Association. So she had this incredible leadership role within the government on top of it to help all women weavers throughout the country, not only the ones that were working with her since the 90s. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm so mesmerized by everything that's in her studio, and I can hear the click clack of the looms that are, you know, behind the, the showroom, and I'm, you know, peering through the windows, and they, her daughter uh, takes me on a tour of this space, and they're naturally dying with indigo leaves, this bright blue fabric. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. And I, I don't leave. Fortunately, she arrives back home for lunch. So civilized, by the way. And they actually come <laughs> home for, for lunch. lunch. Uh -huh. Yeah. And um, it, it, it was love at first sight. And, and because of her and her family's graciousness and kindness to take me in, I... I ended up having this incredible love affair with the people and the country of, of Laos. And I stayed there for the full six months. And it was at that point where Article 22 was starting to foment in your brain? So definitely there was no name for it. And and frankly, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go back to New York and maybe I'll be an intrapreneur. I'll take this knowledge and plug it into a fashion company with a global market. And when I say take the knowledge, I didn't mean steal it, but I meant how can we actually bring the work and connect people who have the skills and the answers in large part with regard to sustainability, at least on the textile side. It's one set of answers, natural dyeing, how to connect them to a fashion company that could, could really help them build this supply chain and business. I didn't know is the truth, but I did realize that what they were producing was largely either for a local market or it was for a particular niche, like the home goods category. One thing that's very beautiful about Laos and the textiles that they make is that women in Laos are very much culture bearers. Not only are often they the kind of holders of knowledge to produce this art, but also they're wearing it. And it's partially a decree by the government huh. to, and you could argue that's a bad thing, the government is telling me what to wear. But 
it is a point of pride, mm-hmm. at the very least, for government holidays and official business. You wear your sin skirt, and mm-hmm. likely you made it, or your mother, or your grandmother. So that piece of clothing that you wear has so many layers of meaning, literally <laughs> and figuratively. Yeah, yeah. uh huh, exactly. So realizing that it was more than just a piece of textile that this was built into the fabric of their (laughs) society Mm -hmm. that really got me interested in the larger point of all of this talk and at that time it was really very new talk and chatter about sustainability and I realized that yes so often the most underserved people, the people who are perceived as the least developed, have to be resourceful and often have Because many. they're not getting any help from you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they have, they already have some of the answers that we are searching for today. So the wheels are turning in your brain as yeah. you're back here in the States. And then, as I said in the introduction, about this craziness with the unexploded bombs or whatever yeah. and the shrapnel, what were the steps for that? Yes. How did we go from textiles to peace bomb jewelry? Hello. (sighs) This kind of shocks me even to this day. So Vientiane is a cozy capital. It's beautiful and it's small and you you talk and you meet people. And I I ended up having, you know, meetings with the country manager of the World Bank at the time because people were a bit intrigued. What are you doing here? You have no background in economic development or, you know, the nonprofit space, international development. Who are you? You 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 came from coach. So people were curious. And I, I mentioned the words. What about sustainability in fashion? And, and you're literally a one woman band here, right? It's just it's just Elizabeth. It's me. And not knowing what I'm doing, in truth. I have no idea. But I know that I'm onto something when there's this mutual curiosity. And so I, I have this incredible opportunity through a friend of a friend now to go to these four villages with an organization called Helvetas. It's Swiss. It's like they're USAID. And they have just brought electricity through hydropower to these four villages and they know in the distant future this province is going to become a UNESCO World Heritage Site. They also know that their expertise is in agriculture and in sustainable energy. It's not in textiles. So they say could you come consult for us and and assess the textile value chain that's in these four villages the communities now have electricity to produce other things for longer hours. Mm-hmm. How can we help them, you know, to to to, to earn diversify income? also? Exactly. Uh-huh. Because these are four communities where it's farm to table. Uh-huh. And that means subsistence farming. It's not the glamorous understanding we have of it. Mm-hmm. And so basically, I get to these four villages. They're absolutely stunning. I'm, you know, speaking with the women village chief because in these villages there are the men's village chief and the women's village chiefs. And so it's incredibly community oriented and everyone gives me this warm welcome. And I say, well, what else do you make here? And in one of the four villages, 
one of the women grabs my hand and she leads me to this earthen kiln where an artisan is working and it's under this beautiful grass hut. You can see the palm leaves swaying in the background. It's idyllic. And I see this molten metal being poured into wood and ash molds. Everything is completely handmade. And I see the mold open and it's a spoon. And it's the spoon that I had eaten my noodle soup off of for breakfast. Like, that's that's cool. That's mm-hmm. made in this village. Mm-hmm. And then she leads me to a shed full of scrap metal. And I look closely at the piece she's picked up for me and written is rocket mortar. In English. In English. And she knew. She knew I would understand those words. Right. And it all just suddenly clicked. And I thought, these are our bombs. These are American Mm. bombs. Mm -hmm. This is part of the Vietnam War story. Mm -hmm. And I don't know it. And we have to make a bracelet and buy back the bombs. And it was the most cliche of cliche aha moments. But that is exactly how it happened. That... To you, it was almost a no-brainer that in spite of the fact that you saw spoons, right, you just said, we have to make jewelry. And so then what did you do? So I really was so impressed by how the people who were affected by all aspects of the war, who were refugees leaving their village during the war, taking refuge in the capital city of Vientiane, coming back at the end of the war around 1973 when the last bombs were dropped, finding their village littered with shrapnel, a crashed jet plane, and unexploded bombs. These people with these problems found a way to take that horror and make it into something useful. Right, right. So this wasn't my idea. That was all their idea. The bracelet was something I thought was necessary for a more global market. There's not a big market for spoons. Exactly. And when you think of really what is maybe your favorite piece or pieces of jewelry, I don't know, what what would you first think of? You don't have to say what it is, but... Mm -hmm. Is Are there other characteristics like who gave it to you? Sure. It's significant. For what occasion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was it passed down? And I can't say that this was my realization at the time. It's definitely more a matter of reflection and how we've built the collection out from a single bracelet to over 50 styles. But I think really the word heirloom is is what jewelry is all about its significance these are pieces of history History. Mm -hmm. and so jewelry I guess innately made a lot of sense and it's it's something you wear and it's a conversation piece right right and our pieces are different people don't exactly know they know it's not gold it's a silver tone but they kind of get the sense that it's not silver so people are always asking what is it and it's so light and it doesn't tarnish. And the way we've, the very first thing we did to finish it was tell the story on it. 
dropped and made in Laos. <laughs> you make it sound so simple, and I'm not patronizing you about that. I mean, obviously, it's so part of who you are, and it just seems like all of this was a natural act. Well, here's, you know, all this bomb debris, and it just took off, didn't it? Well, you do have a good point, though. It probably took a year for us to get the first sample. Yeah, big deal. In the big scheme of things, it's nothing. Yeah. And I had to say to my partner at the time, who is the local Laotian um, and Swiss NGO you know, field manager, I said, it's taking them a while to, to make my prototype. You know, what, what is it? What do you think is holding them back? I'm a New Yorker. Yes. And I, you know, uh, hello. <laughs> Patience, although it is one of your virtues, but wasn't then maybe one of your bigger virtues. And I was just curious, you know, if they can make spoons, they can make bracelets. I'm sure. I mm -hmm. know it might be more difficult because they're not used to it. But so he, he looked at me and I had gone back at this time and I had brought this other alternative mold made from metal because I was worried that if I got there and they really couldn't do it, then I just wanted to have a backup. Well, guess what? Their mold was the best. Mm -hmm. They did finally do it. But Laura Vang explained to me, he said, you know, a lot of Falong come here and have ideas, but then nothing happens. And they know they have a market for the spoons, but who's going to buy the bracelets? And I said, okay, I get it. Total respect. Mm -hmm. I said, I can't promise anything other than that their efforts will be compensated by a first order of 500 bracelets at whatever price they want. And we did the first 500 and that turned into a thousand and a few thousand and now many more thousands. Where'd the money come from? So family and friends to, to fund the initial mm -hmm, amount. Mm -hmm. And I had sold my coach stock that I got as part of being an employee at almost the peak. And it was pure luck that that happened. Well, that seems to be a factor in your life anyway. Well, when you think about it, I got to... Laos, September 2008, and the market was crashing. crashing. Yeah, yeah. So I was fortunate to have that little nest egg. egg. Mm -hmm. And when I got that first order of bracelets, I got friends and family together and friends and friends and friends of friends together, admittedly, at a bar on Broom Street, and we had a fundraiser selling the bracelets, and that is what got the next order going and then the next order after that. So it it's all really started bootstrapping. And it all started with bracelets, but it mm -hmm. hasn't certainly stayed with bracelets. So immediately the idea was to buy back the bombs, literally and figuratively. It's a circle, a bracelet's a circle. So part of the idea was that for every single piece that we would buy from the artisans and then sell part of the proceeds. So 10% of the product cost would go to the local organization called Minds Advisory Group. They work all over the world, but they were the ones in this province that are actually expertly and professionally clearing some of the 80 million unexploded bombs from the land in Laos. A mind-boggling number. So that was it. The first bracelet cleared three square meters. And then 
as we started selling in New York and what really changed this from a side hustle to a, okay, I'm going to make this a full-time venture. And I brought on my partner, Camille Hautefort, who's French. This is at the end of 2012, was the holiday market at Union Square and Columbus Circle. And those are two big sections of Manhattan for people who don't know. Yeah, That's right. Mm-hmm. And we've since expanded into a third in Manhattan. So it's kind of a pop-up. Called Bryant Park. And mm-hmm. we do those around the holidays, but mm-hmm. it's not the only way we sell. And when we started talking to customers, at that point now, we really only had like four or five styles. We had a bracelet that could be worn any size by anyone. We had four different sizes of our circular bangle bracelet. We had a few necklaces, very limited. And then we did those year after year, and people kept wanting more things. We were getting emails from brides and grooms saying, I'm looking for an alternative wedding band. Do you have rings? Wow. We didn't even have rings right. at that point. Right. So that led to, you know, our one of our mantras is love is the bomb. Huh. And so we started embedding diamonds into these new wedding bands, essentially. Into these pieces of shrapnel. Exactly. <laughs> you make it sound so easy, but it's just, it's ingenious. It, it all goes back to the artisans turning this negative thing into something positive. And I think part of the product evolution is linked to what we feel our customers are telling us. And it's that not only are people fascinated by this part of history they don't know and then disturbed by how they could not know it. Right. Um, But also by the fact that the legacy of a war is ongoing until that last unexploded bomb is removed. (laughs) Right. What people are identifying with is this global message of transformation. And I think it's the story of humanity. Even anyone who has had any experience in any war empathizes with the situation in Laos and the people there. Different circumstances, but same long-term effect. And then on a personal basis, people who don't have any direct connection to war are just feeling empowered by this metal that is made by people who are are, impacted by are impacted and doing something about it. Right, or turning it around. Oh, that's right. So from bracelets it went to rings and to necklaces and to earrings. And so you really have a very versatile array of product. Yeah, it's really important for us that um People can wear it and integrate it into their regular jewelry that in a way, although it looks different, it doesn't look so crazy. It's about using design as a tool for development and and using it as something that can both be meaningful and positive and beautiful. It's not only meaningful for the person that's wearing it, but it's meaningful for the people that make it and the land that gets cleared. Well, and also if somebody comes up and says, I really like your bracelet, where did you get it? Well, and they're not going to say Tiffany's. And then the story is going to, you know, go from one person to another. How can people get your jewelry? Yeah. People can get our jewelry on article22.com. We're also sold at a few museums across the country. And we also have small stores, uh, fashion boutiques and concept stores in Europe and, um, and Australia. So the best thing to do is actually to go on our website and explore, see our documentary, Buying Back the Bombs, and also go on our stockist page to see where 
we may be selling near you. So, Elizabeth, does it really give you pause when you look back and see what you gave birth to? I'm not deifying you, but I'm deifying you. I think when I was a student and I read the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I really believed in that, you know, and that was in our United States' mm-hmm. declaration. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have no choice but to be hopeful and optimistic and just pursue the idea that beauty will save the world. And even if the world is a really complicated place and on a day-to-day, sometimes it's hard to have that optimism, it's how I choose to work. I choose to work with that optimism. And it doesn't mean it's always easy. It is hard. I don't think any entrepreneur would say that they took the easy path. Sure. But everything that's in the Declaration of Human Rights, of universal human rights, that defines Article Article 22, 22, our company, you know, we believe and we do our best to practice at our headquarters in Brooklyn to the the work we do with, you know, 40 artisan partners in Laos to the interactions that we have with our customers. So I think that's a perfect way to end. I stand in awe of you, Elizabeth Suda. This was just so fascinating and so empowering. And I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. This was terrific. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.